To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. Exactly how violent is the world right now? You know, we tend to think that things are always getting worse, that there's more conflicts, that there's more partisan divide and whatnot. We definitely feel that in the world right now. So it's easy to assume that there's more conflicts than ever before. But is that the case? I'm talking in terms of actual warfare, like, like actual countries declaring war against each other. Like, are there any of those going on right now in the world? Actually, yeah, there's, there's a lot of them. You might not hear much about them in the American media, but there are about 40 ongoing conflicts going on in the world right now, according to Wikipedia, which has never been wrong and has never gotten me in trouble with Ukraine. Although the definition of wars and conflicts does get a little bit muddy. For example, they include the Mexican drug war, which while not between two different countries, obviously, it was the bloodiest conflict in 2020. But how does that compare to the past? There's some charts from real world and data that paint an interesting picture there. First of all, stepping way back, all the way to 1500, you can see that global conflicts among great powers is at an all-time low. The years of kingdoms fighting against great nations is over. And since World War II, the trend is generally down. But this is in wars between countries. The number of civil conflicts, on the other hand, conflicts between forces fighting for control of a country, has risen. Meaning the trend is toward a lot more conflicts that are less deadly. So... yay? Actually, I can't help but wonder if all these destabilizing countries might have something to do with this new communication technology that's emerged over the last 20 years. <laughs> Just saying. I mean, even if the internet can't directly be blamed for these conflicts, it's definitely become a battleground for these conflicts. The world is changing, as we all know, and the nature of war is changing along with it. But where's it going? We used to imagine the future of warfare as giant superpowers threatening each other with nuclear weapons for total annihilation, but it's starting to look like something else entirely. Somewhat ironically, just as I began writing this video about the future of war, the United States pulled out of Afghanistan after 20 years of occupation. There's plenty of heated opinions on this and plenty of blame to go around. I won't contribute to that in this video, but I think we can all agree it, uh, it did not go well. In fact, I don't really want to talk in specifics about it because by the time this video comes out, I'm sure anything that I say will be wrong. What I can say is that this is not the first time this has happened. In fact, the United States can add its name to a very long list of empires, including the Soviet Union, Great Britain, the Sikhs, the Mughals, Timur, the Mongols under Genghis Khan, the Rashidun Caliphate, the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and the Persians who invaded Afghanistan and tried to hold it and failed miserably. Yeah, it's not called the Graveyard of Empires for nothing. There have been a ton of videos about why Afghanistan is impossible to hold, but it mostly comes down to geography. You know, it's a landlocked country that's surrounded by mountains that are easy to hide out in, plus the, the mountain passes are narrow and kind of create kill zones that make it almost impossible to move through. Still, considering today's technology and satellite imagery and everything, you think we'd do a better job of rooting these people out than, say, you know, Alexander the Great, but uh, apparently not. So as we look at the upcoming technologies that are going to define warfare in the coming years, it's good to keep in mind that some things about war are probably never going to change. 
Also, I do want to acknowledge that I just took a very complex situation and reduced it down to a very simple point. We're gonna be picking apart what happened over the last 20 years for a, a very long time to come. But some things about war are changing, and drastically, and one of those is the newest battleground for warfare that I started talking about a minute ago, the internet. Cyber attacks have been around for a lot longer than you think. The first worm was created by Bob Thomas in 1971. A worm is a kind of malicious software that replicates itself and uses the computer to spread it to other computers, usually with the intention to get access to data. And hacking over the years has changed from individual hackers to groups and clusters of hackers that were perfectly replicated in Hollywood movies. to today, where entire nation states are devoting billions of dollars to build hacker farms, launching endless attacks to access sensitive systems of foreign adversaries, and even into allies. One notable example is the Russian SolarWinds cyber attack. A quick recap is that the parent company Orion had malicious software inserted into their SolarWinds project without their knowledge. And the hackers did this via the update server, so every time an update was triggered, it would just spread that malicious software to all the users. Clever. And a recent cyber attack was carried out by the Chinese government using security flaws in Microsoft software. The Chinese government denied this uh, accusation, but they were quick to point out that the U.S. had the PRISM program, which was highlighted by Edward Snowden. So one misconception about cyber warfare, uh, or at least one that I had, so I assume some of you might have had it, is that it's just about accessing information, um, which is obviously bad, but that's more, that's more intangible. It's not as concrete as, you know, blowing people up with explosions. Except a cyber attack in Iran did exactly that. In April of this year, an explosion at the Natanz uranium enrichment site was caused by a power failure that was apparently caused by a computer hack. The main culprit in this was Israel, according to the New York Times. So yeah, cyber attacks do actual damage. In fact, it's fairly common for countries to attack each other's power grids. And in fact, Russia's doing it almost as a sort of psychological warfare. According to reporter David E. Sanger, malicious code has been found in many power stations across the US. The code doesn't really do anything, but it does send a signal. According to Sanger, quote, they've put code into our electric power grid as a reminder that at any time they wanted, they could begin starting blackouts in the United States. I mean, just a few months back, the Colonial Pipeline hack disrupted our fuel infrastructure and led to gas shortages all along the East Coast. I mean, that's another way to kneecap a country with cyber warfare. I mean, and on top of that, the absolute deluge of internet, social media bots, and fake pages, and misinformation campaigns run from thousands of clickbait and, and content farms all around the world designed to sow discord in populations of other countries. I mean, why spend the money and the time and the resources and the effort to physically invade a country when you can just manipulate the populace to make them tear themselves apart? I mean, if you want to topple a world power but you don't have the resources to do so, that's the smart move. You know, sneak in through the back door. I'm just saying, that's the kind of thing that, say, a former KGB agent would think of. Or anybody who doesn't have the high ground and is smarter than this guy. And we're probably just seeing the beginning of this. You know, we've been hearing about cyber warfare for a really long time, but now for the first time we're really seeing it have real-world consequences. When, when you can't fill up your car with gas because of a cyber attack, that makes it pretty real. So yeah, at the risk of sounding like Joe Stradamus, I do think we're going to be seeing a lot more of that in the coming years. So as annoying as two-factor authentication is, I think that's something we're all just going to have to get used to. So let's talk about drones now. Uh, military drones have been a part of warfare for quite a while now, especially in Afghanistan and the Middle East. Um, but we're far past the point where we're uh, just blown away by the fact that some pilot in Indiana could fly a real-time mission on the other side of the world. Drones have come a long way in a very short time. For example, now 
you don't need a pilot at all. They can just be piloted by AI. The obvious advantage of drones is that you don't risk the life of a pilot or risk them being captured. Um, and if, you know, if it's a high-tech drone and there's very sensitive equipment on it, it can always just blow itself up to prevent it from falling into the hands of the enemy. But they can also maneuver in ways that no human pilot can do. Even the best, most trained pilots can manage about nine Gs with compression suits and everything. A drone can handle... All the Gs. And we're also experimenting with speeds going all the way up to Mach 20 with the hypersonic technology vehicle 2, or HTB2. We have drones doing stealth bombing runs, flying up to Mach 20, spying on other people. There are even drones that refuel fighter jets. Don't get me wrong, drones aren't cheap, but between their maneuverability and their capability and not needing a pilot, drones are seeing a massive spike in investment right now. And that's probably gonna continue into the future. Now those are big drones, basically unmanned planes at that point, but smaller drones can make a big impact as well, if you have enough of them. I mean, just look at what happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. You know, Nagorno-Karabakh, the disputed territory between Azerbaijan and Armenia. <laughs> you don't crack an atlas every once in a while? Come on! There's a conflict that erupted there last year that gives us a nice preview of what drone warfare would look like in the future. I don't want to go too far into this because it's a very long story, it goes all the way back to the 1920s, but this is a long simmering conflict that would occasionally erupt into actual violence every once in a while, and in 2020 it erupted in a big way. And the result was a pretty clear victory for Azerbaijan, and it was done using a fleet of hundreds of drones that were purchased from Israel and Turkey and the United States. According to military analyst Michael Kaufman, quote, drones offer small countries very cheap access to tactical aviation and precision-guided weapons, enabling them to destroy an opponent's much costlier equipment such as tanks and air defense systems. He also added, an air force is a very expensive thing, and they permit the utility of air power to much smaller, much poorer nations. Cheap drones can be quickly deployed and then circle over a position for hours in what are known as uh, loitering munitions attacks. And then when the time is right, they simply just drive themselves into the target and blow it up. Or some more advanced loitering munition drones can use AI to identify enemy targets. I mean, in the future, drone warfare could just be set it and forget it. You just set them out there and they find what they need to find and do their thing. It's almost like landmines that can seek you out and blow you up where you are. And if you're thinking that's all well and good, but for my Black Mirror dreams to come true, I want a drone with a machine gun on it. Well, that exists. It's called the Songar, and it's made by Turkey, and it is the first medium-sized drone that has a machine gun on it. Oh, and a uh, grenade launcher, too. Yeah, I could spend a lot of time in this video going over all the different types of drones that are being used for the military now, because they're not just in the air, they're also drone armored vehicles and tanks, there's underwater drones and drone patrol boats. And these are just what America has. All the G20 countries are working on technology like this. So yeah, medium-sized drones are definitely gonna play a much bigger part in war in the future. But then if you wanna get really scared, let's talk about micro drones. Yeah, thanks to innovations in drone technology and battery tech, we can now make long-lasting drones that you can just carry in the palm of your hand. The Black Hornet's such a drone. Weighing at 100 grams, it has 20 minutes flight time and it takes HD video and can achieve a top speed of 13 miles an hour. It doesn't have weapons, but it's used for surveillance and a ground counterpart to this is the Throwbot 2. And those drones are neat, but what about thousands of these drones flying in a swarm being controlled by AI? This is where things get eerie. The US Air Force has already kind of teased that they're working on this kind of technology in a promotional video from 2018. And to get a less violent idea of what drone swarming technology might look like, a Chinese company broke the Guinness World Record last year for putting on a performance with 3,051 drones. 
It doesn't take a large leap of the imagination to see these drones sweeping through a city and identifying enemy combatants or even being armed with very small ordinances. It's a pretty terrifying prospect. And while that kind of thing doesn't exist right now, it's definitely being imagined and being developed right now. In fact, they have a name, they're called Slaughterbots. Swarms of thousands of drones using facial recognition technology and carrying a couple grams of poison or a single shot munition can be used to take out individual targets or members of a group considered to be enemy combatants in one fell swoop. This is a thing that could exist in the near future. By the way, what you were just seeing on screen is actually from a short film called Slaughterbots. I'll link it down below. It was designed to uh, kind of show the dangers of this technology, but I feel the need to tell you that that is not real. Just gotta make that clear these days. But the harm a system like that could cause is pretty obvious. I mean, imagine in the future if instead of storming the Capitol, somebody just unleashed a swarm of these drones into the Capitol and it just wiped out all the members of a certain political party. At the same time, though, imagine if uh, some planes dropped these swarms over those concentration camps in North Korea and it wiped out all the guards and administrators of the camps and, and freed all the people. So proponents of this technology would say that that's the argument for it, that it would only take out the bad guys and eliminate collateral damage. On the other hand, that's the same argument that's been made for drones for a very long time. And as we now know, like something like 90% of our U.S. drone strikes have some form of collateral damage associated. But even before we get to swarms of hummingbird-sized murder machines, the U.S. military is already working to sort of network various elements of their ground and air tactics to coordinate and change according to the situation on the ground. That might mean collaborating to take out a specific target or redirecting autonomous supply lines that have come under attack. There's even a program in the works called Golden Horde that will take swarms of, of bomb drones mixed in with decoy drones to sort of confuse the enemy anti-drone technology. And yet, that's another thing. There's also tons of anti-drone technologies that are coming up in various locations around the world. So from large pilotless planes to, to swarms of murder bots, drones are definitely going to play a large part in the wars of the future. As I said, I could go on and on because there's a lot of drone stuff going on, but I think for the purpose of this video, it's time to move on to nuclear weapons. Because, yeah, those are, those are still a problem. In fact, you might have heard of the Doomsday Clock that keeps track of how close we are to total global nuclear annihilation. Well, the Doomsday Clock peaked at 100 seconds to midnight last year, which is kind of amazing considering how things were in the 60s. Just a reminder, I might have talked about this before, but uh, tonight when you tuck your kids into bed or your dog or the next time you take a bite into a nice juicy burger, you might want to take a moment to thank Vasily Arkhipov. Vasily Arkhipov was a Soviet submarine captain whose ship came under attack by a U.S. ship that was dropping death charges. Actually, they weren't exactly sure if they were completely under attack or if it was just a training exercise, but the other captains wanted to go ahead and launch a 10 kiloton nuclear torpedo at the ship. They thought the World War III had started. But Vasily held out, and that prevented them from launching it because a nuclear launch required a three-officer consensus. And yeah, that's what it came down to. Just one man. If Vasily had gone along with it, then World War III absolutely would have started, and the whole mutual assured destruction thing would have kicked in. So, yeah, your kid, your dog, your juicy burger, you, probably wouldn't exist. So what happens when humans exit that equation? Like, would an AI make the same choice? You know, with AI controlling all these various aspects of the military that are tied into nuclear escalation, you could see how some kind of trigger could, could escalate into something uncontrollable really fast. Or going back to cyber attacks, what happens when, you know, hackers get access to a totally digital system that encompasses all of our various space assets, but also nuclear? 
I mean, could we see a runaway reaction, a, a positive feedback loop to self-destruction? That's why the doomsday clock is so high. And by the way, if we're talking about AI controlling the access to nuclear weapons, just understand that all of that applies to all that cyber attack stuff that we were talking about earlier as well. AIs only enhance our ability to shut down infrastructure and manipulate markets and control voting patterns through social media. I mean, we already have bots doing exactly that. You know, setting up fake accounts, using fake pictures, and posting links to fake AI-generated articles. I mean, seriously, we've already entered a post-truth world. One of the biggest battles we're going to fight in the future is the war against misinformation, much of it driven by malicious AI. So the last area of future warfare we're going to talk about today, for this video anyway, is space. And viewers of this channel follow space stuff pretty closely, and it's pretty hard to miss that space has become a more militarized uh, situation just by looking at the name of Cape Canaveral, which is now called Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Yes, at the end of 2019, the Trump administration created the Space Force as a sixth branch of the military, and it was, it was mostly met with laughter. Nobody took it seriously. In fact, it was taken so unseriously that Netflix created a sitcom around it, and that sitcom came out immediately, like literally five months after the announcement was made, they had aired their first episode. I mean, I personally was just confused because I felt like the Air Force already had that covered. Um, and in fact, I'm kind of right. I mean, the Space Force was basically spun off from the Air Force Space Command. According to USA.gov, the role of Space Force is to, quote, it organizes, trains, and equips Space Forces to protect U.S. and allied interests in space and to provide space capabilities to the Joint Force. <laughs> that is some government copywriting right there. The whole point is the U.S. military clearly sees space playing a greater role in conflicts going forward. Um, but what does that look like? I mean, are we gonna have Space Force bases in orbit? Like, are they gonna have their own space stations with Space Force astronauts? We know they're gonna have Space Force astronauts. In fact, they've already had an astronaut in space. Uh, pretty much right after the announcement, astronaut Michael S. Hopkins uh, basically changed his commission from the Air Force over to the Space Force while he was on the ISS. So yeah, Space Force had a human presence in space pretty much the day it was created. Now, there are no plans that I could find anyway for them to actually have, you know, Space Force stations in space or anything like that. Mostly they're all about sort of protecting and defending uh, the space satellites and the ground stations that support so much of the military. Because just like any other supply chain, space has now become an infrastructure for the military and it is vulnerable to attack. On July 15th of 2020 last year, a Russian satellite called the Cosmos 2543 launched a projectile at another Russian satellite in an attempted, uh, space attack test run, basically. It didn't hit it, which is good, because we've got enough space junk up there, but, but U.S. military command did see that as a threatening act. According to Space Force General John Raymond saying in a statement, quote, the test is another example that the threats to the U.S. and allied space systems are real, serious, and increasing. Russia denies this, as well as another incident from 2017 where the U.S. claims that a Russian satellite was spying on a U.S. satellite, whatever that means. Space Force also has access to the autonomous space plane X-37B, uh, which can be in orbit for up to two years at least, or at least it's been up there for two years at this point anyway. Um, it's basically a spy satellite on demand that looks like a tiny little space shuttle. Now this is where the bulk of their attention is going to be focused for the foreseeable future. Long term, uh, things are going to get kind of murky once some you know, space resources start to become a factor. Like if, as I covered in the moon mining episode, helium-3 becomes the, the oil of the future because of nuclear fusion, um, yeah, the, the mining and resources on the moon is gonna become a particularly messy situation if history is any guide. So it's hard to say if we'll ever have like an expanse situation with like space armies fighting it against each other, but uh, needless to say, space assets are a thing that's going to be getting a lot of attention in the near future. 
And by the way, none of this is new. Uh, when you think about it, space has always been militarized. You know, the the Air Force Space Command has been covering this theater since 1982. And I mean, our first astronauts that went up in the 60s were all military guys being launched on ICBMs. But back down here on Earth, war has almost always been about resources, having access to resources, trading resources, and the more interconnected our world has become, the more we rely on that trade of resources. And as the number of humans on this planet continues to rise and climate change does what it does to the world, uh, the access and distribution of these resources are what's going to define the conflicts of the future. And you know, take water, for example. Many people are predicting that the kind of wars that we're fighting today over oil are going to someday going to be fought over water. Because some countries are going to have a lot of it, some countries won't. You know, only 2.5% of the water on Earth is fresh water that we can drink, but a lot of that is frozen up in glaciers or, or way deep down below the Earth. So it could be that the country that perfects desalination techniques will be the ones that have an edge in the future. Not to mention other resources like lithium or the metals that make up our computer chip boards. But while we dream of a peaceful future with no war, I'm skeptical that we're ever actually going to see that, personally. War is hell, but it's also profitable. Like, any discussion about the war in Afghanistan and the fact that we were there for 20 years has to include into it the fact that there are a lot of companies that made billions of dollars off of that war. So yeah, I mean, as long as war and defense are a big part of the economy, as long as there's a global military-industrial complex run by powerful people making billions of dollars off of it, I'm afraid war is just going to be a part of life here on Earth. And soon above it. But however soldiers go to battle in the future, they're going to want to do it in comfortable underwear. Luckily for them, the future of underwear is already here thanks to today's sponsor, Mack Weldon. Mack Weldon. Because war is hell, but your butt doesn't have to be. You guys have heard me talk about Mack Weldon before. You've heard me talk about how they design multiple types of fabrics they use, from air knit to warm knit to the silver series that's antimicrobial and prevents odor. You've heard all that. You don't need to hear me mention it here. Again. What you might not know is that all these fabrics actually work together in what they call the daily wear system. Look, you're a busy guy. I get it. You don't want to spend time every morning thinking about what kind of clothes you want to put on. This is why Steve Jobs had a whole closet full of turtlenecks. Well, with the daily wear system, you have that same uh, simplicity, only you don't have to wear the same thing all the time. From breathable t-shirts and polos to button-up shirts and shorts, underwear, you name it, these clothes are rooted in smart design and made with a performance fabrics that are designed to work together. And you can get 20% off your first order when you go to MacWeldon.com slash Joe Scott and enter the promo code Joe Scott at purchase. If nothing else, just go check it out. You'd really be surprised at what all they have. I, I, there are some days when I, I think I walk out the door and I am decked head to toe in, in Mack Weldon. I've got like, I've got a polo shirt, I've got workout shirts, I've got uh, three pairs of shorts, like several pair of underwear, socks. <laughs> I've got the whole thing. Anyway, it's worth checking out. I think you'll like it. Just go to MacWeldon.com slash Joe Scott, enter Joe Scott, the promo code, 20% off. You got it. Go check it out. All right, big thanks to Mac Weldon for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon that are supporting this channel, forming an awesome community, and just being overall cool people. Uh, I got some names I need to murder real quick. You got Ryan M, Emmy, Alejandro Murray, JJ, David, LT Marshall, Daniel F. Lema Kurtisix, <laughs> uh, Joshua Petz, Julia Bossman, and A Bird. Uh, thank you guys so much. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos, uh, exclusive live streams, and all that kind of jazz, you can go to patreon.com slash answerswithjoe. 
By the way, t-shirts available at the store at answerswithjoe.com slash store. I thought this was appropriate for today. So it sticks to spears, to swords, to guns, to, yeah, the whole thing. Uh, there's all kinds of fun nerdy shirts there. You can go check them out. Again, it's answerswithjoe.com slash store. Please like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, um, Google thinks you'll like this video. So you can go check that out or any of the others on the side over here. They got my face on them. And if you enjoy them, I invite you to subscribe. I come back with videos every Monday. All right, that's it for now. You guys go out there, have an eye-opening rest of the week. Stay safe, and I'll see you next Monday. Love you guys. Take care.